Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Listening to Dr. Rob White with the AULC Ministries. Scan the QR code to visit our website at AULC.us and find us on Roku, Amazon Fire TV, and TalkShoe. The following presentation is from a new series from Dr. Rob White called Blast from the Past. In this series, Dr. Rob will feature past sermons that were recorded live. We hope you enjoy this new series. Let's start off our sermon with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we had a tragedy earlier this last week where another school shooting happened. 14 injured, 17 killed because a 19-year-old with a mental illness was misguided and decided to take it out on his, his friends. We ask, Lord, that you be with those families, you be with those first responders, those caregivers, and just be with the, the victims, Lord, as they all come around each other to look at this tragedy and ask why. We ask today that you be with us because we all have tragedies in our lives, something that's going on that we just have to ask why. And we just ask, Lord, to be with us today as we go into the sermon and that maybe some answers are there that we greatly need to hear. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture lesson today comes from Matthew 16, 21 to 28. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. I assure you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. 
Now, there are many ways that we can exercise our bodies. We can ride a bike or play soccer or baseball or go on walks or run in a race. We can swing on monkey bars or we can climb on the pyramids and the playgrounds. There are lots of active things that we can do. Now, we don't do them as much when we're older, but as youth, we do a lot of these things. Now, the more we use our muscles, the stronger we become. And we notice as we get older, the weaker we become too, because we don't use our muscles that much. Now, take hiking, for example. Hiking is a very good form of exercise. Uh, especially if you live like near a mountain range or you're able to hike along a trail or go through a beautiful forest or along a creek or whatever. Uh, living in a desert, your hiking trail may lead you into a canyon and you'll see interesting rock formations and desert plants and flowers. And in a city, you may hike through a park filled with tall trees and colorful flowers. Maybe a, a pond will be there. And there's lots of things that we can do to not only strengthen our muscles, but strengthen our character as well. Our character, that's who we are. If we have a good, strong character, others will see us as being honest and kind and dependable and generous and brave. And even though hiking is fun, like many forms of exercise, it's not easy. A path that we may be going on may be steep, and rough and cause us to get tired faster. Or the pack that you're carrying will make you uh, feel like it's too heavy or you get a blister on your foot or you get too whole, cold or too hot or you get thirsty, you camp overnight, you have a leaky tent. There's all sorts of things. Now Jesus talked about a similar idea with his disciples in verse 24 of our lesson today. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, this Bible verse here means that at times we have to make a choice, a choice to do something we would rather not do. We'd rather watch TV than go and do the dishes, for example, or we'd rather go to a beach than go out in the garden and pull weeds. We'd rather go somewhere and be with friends than to sit home alone. There's things that we do that we might have to make a choice to do something different. And each time that we make a choice to deny ourselves and do something that helps others, we build and strengthen our character. When you choose to follow Jesus, you choose a life of freedom but you also choose a life of responsibility. And it's not easy because you may encounter some people along the way who make fun of you for doing what you're doing. And there may be times when you're doing something and you're doing it for God and you see someone doing something else that that looks a lot of fun. I'd rather be doing that. But we choose to honor God instead of honoring ourselves. When we hike, we find beauty and enjoy the freedom and the freshness found in nature. And it may become uncomfortable to hike, but it's worth it. Being a Christian is just like that. You're becoming a stronger Christian and you're becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. What would it take 
to make you happy. Just think about that for a second. What would it take to make you happy? Would it be being rich, being beautiful, being at the top of your game at your profession, getting a better job, quitting your job, maybe winning the lottery or marrying into money or maybe getting a divorce, having time to play or working at a job you enjoy? There's a thousand answers to that question that can be said, what would it do to make you happy? Now, for many people, happiness is money and things that money can buy. Maria Manis believes that American men in particular are obsessed with money, but she doesn't let women off the hook either. She says, if American men are obsessed with money, American women are obsessed with weight. The men talk of gain, the women talk of loss. And I don't know which one is more boring, she says. So what's important to you? What would make you happy? What would solve all of your problems? How do you cope with that? In his play called The Price, Arthur Miller had one of his characters give a very modern answer to this question. You see, the main thing today is shopping. Years ago, a person, he was unhappy. He didn't know what to do with himself, so he'd go to church. He'd start a revolution or do something. Today, when you're unhappy and you can't figure it out, what is your salvation? Shopping. That's my wife's salvation. She likes shopping. But in Jesus' day, though, the Jewish people knew exactly what it would take to make them happy. They wanted to be free. They wanted the Roman soldiers gone, completely out of Israel. They hated the soldiers because the soldiers reminded them every day they were not free. It really got to them when a soldier ordered them to carry his burden. In those days, if you're walking down the street and you was a Jewish person and a Roman soldier walked up to you and said, here, carry all my gear, you had to do it. It was the law. If a Roman soldier told you to do something, you had to do it. Sometimes a soldier would insult a woman or even worse, a revered old man. But people hardly said anything. They didn't dare talk against the Romans. You strike back at a Roman soldier and you land in jail or at worst, you get killed for it. It bothered the Jewish people that they had to pay taxes to Rome. What did their taxes buy? Their taxes paid the Roman soldiers. Their taxes kept the emperor in luxurious living. The Jewish people could hardly wait for a Messiah to come and save them. They knew that their little nation, the, the right leadership, and with God's help, they could do anything. King David proved that. He not only slew the giant Goliath, but he won every battle that he set out in. And when David was king, Israel was on top. When the Messiah returned, they would be on top again. And even Rome couldn't stand up against the Messiah. But when would the Messiah come in? It seems amazing to me that Christianity is as popular as it is. Sometimes I wonder if people really understand Christianity at all. 
The apostle Peter certainly didn't understand it. He had some grand and glorious ideas about what Jesus was going to do. And he was happy to be part of this grand and glorious enterprise. Now, I don't know how Peter would have answered it if we had asked what he expected of Jesus. But I'm certain that he would have been a little off target. Most likely, he would have said that he expected Jesus to be just like David. Israel's greatest king, Israel's greatest warrior. Now, Israel was never, ever considered a large country. But under David, it became a great country. The Israelites won their battles. They expanded their borders. They commanded respect. And that's what the people wanted. They wanted respect. But in Jesus' day, it had been a long time since Israel had had any kind of commanded respect. In the years after David, Israel had been defeated, subjugated, and humiliated. Foreign powers came and went, and there always seemed to be one there all the time. During Peter's lifetime, the Romans occupied Israel. They collected taxes for the emperor. They stamped Caesar's image on their coins. And the Jews did pretty much everything they were told. This wasn't much of a way to live. The Jews didn't expect that this would go on forever, though, because God had promised them a Messiah of the house and of the lineage of David. And they could just imagine what that meant. This Messiah, this man like David, would come in and lead them. He would show the Romans a thing or two. He would win their independence. He would make them great again. He would get them the respect that they wanted with a capital R. And they waited a long time for the Messiah to come. In fact, it had been centuries at this point. But now he was here, and Peter could hardly wait. Peter said that, the time had come. And just a bit ago, Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was. Just in uh, previous chapters here. Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus didn't correct him, but said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We see this in Matthew 16, 17. That did it for Peter right there. That confirmed it. The Messiah was here, and he, Peter, had turned out to be the Messiah's right-hand man. He could hardly believe his good fortune. Jesus asked the disciples, Who do you say that I am, the, the Son of Man? And the disciples answered, John the Baptist, or maybe Elijah, or Jeremiah. And those were all good answers, because John, and Elijah, and Jeremiah were all three great prophets of the time. They were great men of God. If people thought that Jesus was one of these, that meant they, they thought very, very highly of Jesus. But then Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? With the emphasis on you. That was an important question. And why did Jesus' disciples, what did they think of him? Peter answered, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter was proud to be a disciple of the Messiah. That was a privilege to be born at the right place at the right time. Peter and other disciples would be part of the greatest moment in Jewish history. They'd be there when Israel was put back on top again, and they were excited, they were happy. But then Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and then be killed, and on the third day, raised up. And we shouldn't be too surprised how Peter responded to that. 
He says, far be it from you, Lord, this will never be done to you. But then Jesus started to tell the disciples what they could expect. He didn't say anything about David. He didn't say anything about organizing an army. He didn't say anything about driving out the Romans. He didn't say anything about making Israel great again. What he did say was that he would undergo great suffering. He would be the one that was killed. He would be raised up again on the third day. But I don't think Peter and the others heard that. They kind of toned out that last part. Peter heard the word killed. All of a sudden his ears shut down. He quit listening. Killed, that's kind of final. When you're dead, you can't do anything. It was as if a promising political candidate had just announced to his closest, closest supporters that he must be assassinated. It sounded like madness and it made no sense at all. And Jesus had it exactly backwards, they thought. But Jesus didn't stop there. He told the disciples they too must bear a cross. He said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. And for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? The disciples had not expected it to be easy. Nothing worthwhile ever is easy. But they did expect Jesus to kind of go off in a sensible direction here. They thought he would go one way, and now he's telling them they're going another way. They thought that he would kill off the Romans, but now he's telling them that he's going to be killed. That doesn't make sense. But Jesus does exactly that. He turns everything upside down. He turns it inside out and backwards. And Jesus did that with everyone. He did that with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and now with his own disciples. Now, Jesus wasn't trying to be perverse here. He wasn't trying to shock his people. The problem with our ways is our ways are not God's ways. Jesus had come to show us God's ways. God's world is an upside down, inside out, backwards world. In God's world, the things that we consider important, things like money and power, they're not important. Fuzzy things like faith and hope and love are everything. Now, Peter, he figured after hearing Jesus say this, Jesus is having a bad day. We're all entitled to an off day, and Jesus is having an off day here. And something must be bothering him. He's feeling a little down today. And he needs a little encouragement. He needs to be put back up on his feet again. So Peter takes Jesus aside to speak to him in private, and he says, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. Now note here, he calls Jesus Lord. And further, he doesn't treat Jesus as Lord. Peter tells Jesus he must and what he must not do. Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. This isn't the way you talk to the Lord. But frankly, faced with the same situation, I think I probably would have done the same thing. Peter treated Jesus like a friend. And he, well, he was talking to him. Same way we would talk to our friends and our family in, in certain situations. 
I would have done the same thing. I would have taken Jesus aside. I would have asked him what was wrong. I would have tried to encourage him just like Peter did. Okay, you're having a bad day, Jesus. It's okay. Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to work out. God chose you to be the Messiah because you're the best and God doesn't ever fail. Things will look better. Just get a good night's sleep. You'll feel better in the morning. Well, Jesus wasn't having any of this. He turned on Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. However, Peter was setting his mind on divine things here. He knew what the Messiah should do, and he was trying to help him just get there. Problem was, of course, Peter didn't understand. He had a vision, and he was trying to get Jesus to live to his vision of what the Messiah was. Jesus, however, had his own vision. Jesus came to save the world, but he wasn't going to do it by raising up an army. He was going to do it by dying on a cross. Is there anyone here who can't understand just how difficult this must have been for Peter to understand? <clears throat> the Savior had come, but he had come to die. That just doesn't make sense. Why would someone just come and die? God's world's never easy to understand. It requires us to put on our thinking caps backwards. We have to learn to think very differently if we're to understand God's world. In fact, you really can't think your way into God's world. You have to experience it. Only when you experience God's world does it really come into focus for you. And only then does it make sense. Jesus told his disciples they'd have to suffer and die and be raised again. He'd have to suffer and die and be raised again on the third day. And it's no wonder Peter took offense to this. Jesus told the disciples they must deny themselves and take up their own cross and follow him. It's no wonder they were confused. Jesus was only in his third year of his ministry. He had a long way to go, they felt. There was lots of things for him to do. They didn't understand. Jesus still does this today, though. He still takes us places where we are not expected to go. He takes us places where we don't want to go. We would like Jesus to make us rich and famous. We would like Jesus to cure all of our illnesses. We would like Jesus to give us life without pain and roses without thorns. And we would like Jesus to reward faith with prosperity. And we would like Jesus to give us a world in which the bad guys never win and the good guys never lose. We'd like Jesus to put a Rolex on our wrist and a Porsche under our accelerator. Or maybe we'd be happy if Jesus would just put another thousand dollars in our bank account. But instead, Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. And what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? And then we respond to that, what? That's not what I was expecting. I expected to be a winner. But now you're saying I'm a loser. I expected to live. Now you're calling me to die. I expected a good life. Now you're telling me I've got to have a bad life. I believe that the other disciples were just as confused as Peter was. 
Jesus was introducing them to the kingdom of God where all the rules were upside down and backwards. It was too much for them to understand. And they wouldn't really understand it until they saw the Lord rise again. It would only be after the resurrection that the disciples would begin to get a handle on what Jesus was telling them this day. Because what Jesus was saying was truly revolutionary to them. And frankly, we have a trouble understanding it today even. We have our own beliefs just like Peter did. And we want Jesus to bless our beliefs. God helps them that helps themselves, we say. Makes a great slogan, but it has a nice ring to it. God helps them that helps themselves. But I got news for you. That's not in the Bible. That's not what the Bible teaches by a long stretch. But the life to which Jesus calls us is not a bad life. It's a good life. In fact, it's a great life. It just takes a bit of attitude adjustment to understand it. You can ask anyone who's experienced true discipleship. And they wouldn't trade it for the world. They wouldn't trade it for a Rolex or a Porsche or anything else. Joe Ehrman knows the good life. He knows what it's all about. He was a defensive tackle for the Baltimore Colts. He played in the NFL for nine years. He was chosen to play in the Pro Bowl. When it came time to retire, Ehrman could have done a number of things. He could have been one of those on-camera guys, retired players who talk about the game on camera, telling us what we're about to see or what we just saw. What a nice job that is. The on-camera guys make good money, they don't even have to go onto the field and put on a uniform and take any hits. But Airman didn't want to be an on-camera guy. After he retired from football, he took over the management of a place called The Door. It's a ministry to kids in Baltimore's inner city. Joe's journey from football warrior to gentle giant started when his kid brother, Billy, contracted cancer. He took care of Billy during his illness. In the process, he found himself reassessing his own life. He began to understand just how important God is, especially during life's toughest times. He invited Christ into his life and found a new life opening and opening up into new vistas that he had never imagined. Of his life before Christ, he says, I always thought I would find great meaning in being a professional football player. I always believed that if I could give him just enough sacks, if my team could do well enough, if my contract would be big enough, if all would come together, I would be happy. But it never came together. It never came together. Don't get the wrong impression. Ehrman had a highly successful football career, but it did not bring him the joy that he had expected. When he talks about retirement, he says football is a young man's game. After nine years in the NFL, Ehrman was still a young man. He says, it's true that a lot of guys struggle when they retire. They lose the external acclaim. It's very confusing for them. They don't know what the position in life is. Now think about that for a moment. They don't know what their position in life is. While they're in football, they know exactly their position. They know they're a defensive tackle or an offensive tackle or a nose guard. Now they know their position. They know where they're supposed to be. They don't know who they are and they don't know what to do when they retire. The transition was much easier for Joe. Once he committed himself to Christ, he learned what his new position would be. 
Christ called him to be a servant. At the door, he found kind of happiness that he had expected from football, but never found. At the door, kids would race up and give him a big hug. And at the door, he found how, how worthwhile his life could really be. He said, I found what I want to do, and I absolutely love it. In the years since, Joe has moved on to other forms of ministry, but he continues to serve the same Christ. He maintains his close connection to the door, and he says, there's no place I'd rather be. And we have other beliefs that we want Jesus to bless as well. Work hard, I tell my kids. Stay in school. Keep your nose clean. Save your money. Invest wisely. Then someday you can retire and play golf. Well, that's not in the Bible either. Nor is it the kind of, game, kind of game plan that Jesus envisions for us. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Is that what you teach your kids? Probably not. But we need to hear it. Our kids need to hear it. We need to hear it when Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It isn't that Jesus wants us to be miserable. He just wants to show us a way to true joy. As one commentator put it, Jesus is not anti-our life. He's anti-preoccupation with our life. Jesus warns that if we decide to live selfishly, life will backfire on us. We will find that we can't get enough of anything to fill the empty space at the core of our being. There won't be enough money, or enough toys, or enough power, or enough awards. There won't be enough of anything to fill the space that is empty at the core of our being. If we choose to spend our lives feeding that empty space, we will grow weary feeding it and grow frustrated at never being full. Jesus warns us that if we spend our lives running after things to make us happy, we'll find ourselves in a rat race that just goes on and on and on and on. At first, it seems exciting, but after a while, it becomes boring, and then it gets downright tedious. At some point, we're going to want to quit, but we'll find out it's only the only game we know. And then when the game finally stops, the game will stop for every one of us. We find ourselves forever in a place as godless as the godless place that we have forever lived. But Jesus promises that if we're willing to lose our lives for his sake, if we're willing to go where he would have us go and do what he would have us do, if we're willing to live our lives in devotion to God and in service of others, we will find the kind of satisfaction everyone covets, but only a few people will find. And Jesus says, whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. And that's true. A book entitled, A Smile as Big as the Moon, tells the story of a special education students, kids with learning disabilities, physical problems, and emotional problems. It's a story of their dream to go to the NASA space camp in Huntsville. Now that might not seem a big deal to each of us, but the space camp is designed for gifted and talented kids, not kids who find school difficult. It wasn't easy to get the camp to accept these kids. Nobody expected them to do well. Their teachers spent a year preparing them and they were hopeful. As it turned out, the special ed kids did very well. 
They came away with a fistful of awards. And the reason was that working for a year towards a common goal, they stopped fighting with each other and started helping each other. They learned to stop focusing on themselves and start focusing on the task and then focusing on each other. And they did well at camp. In fact, they did great. Competing against the brightest and the best, the special ed students walked away with more awards than anyone at that camp. The biggest surprise was the Right Stuff Award. Most awards are presented to teams, but the Right Stuff Award is presented to one individual, to the student who displays the characteristics of a true astronaut, to the kid who demonstrates the best leadership. They awarded the Right Stuff Award to Scott Gowdy, who, in the words of his teacher, just one year earlier had found his greatest pleasure in picking at the wounds of his classmates. But during the year of preparation, Scott had learned to care about the other kids, and he became a leader. When Scott received the Right Stuff Award, the first thing he did was get a pair of scissors, then quietly go off to one side, no fanfare. Scott cut the Right Stuff ribbon into 20 little ribbons. Later, at a victory party, he gave a piece of that ribbon to each one of the special ed kids. Scotty's parents were stunned. But then they realized how much he'd grown just in that last year. And then during that week of camp, and they realized that people at camp, observing in the background, saw what was happening. They rewarded Scott with this Right Stuff Award for his selfless service and for his caring leadership. These smart kids, every day they see them. Genius IQs, there was nothing new. What they were looking for was a kid who was willing to make sacrifices on behalf of his team. Scott did that. The people at the camp noticed. The promise of our gospel lesson today is that God notices too. God doesn't care if you're a genius. He doesn't care if you're wealthy. He cares about selflessness. God cares about love. God cares about service to others. And the warning of our gospel lesson is that God gives up selfish people to their selfishness. Its promise is that God has great rewards waiting for those who live unselfishly in Christ's service. When Jesus says, if anyone that desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He also says, whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. That's what happened for Joe Ehrman when he became a gentle giant for Jesus. That's what happened for Scott Gowdy when he went to that camp. And that's what will happen for you if you let Christ be the Lord of your life. And so it'll be. That's our Lord's message. For this Lord's Day, I hope that you got a, a blessing out of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your lesson today gives us such insight, gives us such instructions that anyone that hears it can follow. And we just ask, Lord, that your, your instructions today, that your insight has touched somebody and let them go, you know, that could be me. I could do that. Just be with us, Lord, as we, we go about our, our ways today, back with our families, our friends, back to our loved ones. And just be with us and let us remember your lesson today. We ask this in your son Jesus' precious name.
Well, go out this week, be a blessing and be blessed. Because the more you're a blessing, the more you will be blessed. Thank you all for coming. We'll see you all next Sunday. Have a great day. Thank you for watching and listening to Dr. Rob White with the AULC Ministries. Athens Universal Life Church is a not-for-profit 501c3 organization. This production is an AULC Studios video production, copyright 2012 to 2023, all rights reserved. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus